Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you're crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. Last summer, I was part of a European church planning summit in Norway. And so when my wife, Nicole, when we, uh, we've gone to Norway a couple of times for this. And when we go, we try to like take this time to do a little getaway because we're not going to like go to Norway on our own. But if we're there already, it's like might as well take a couple of days and do something. And so this last, this last summer, we made plans to climb a glacier in northern Norway. And the day before the glacier climb, we practiced on the, the trails below the glacier. We found like this beautiful trail along a, a rock face with some ancient ruined sketchings on it. And we were standing on this very smooth rock ledge when it, start, when it started to downpour. And that smooth rock got like crazy slippery, got dangerous. And so what we did is we kind of found this, like, this place we could slide down a little bit, like a, like a, like a, almost like a, a water slide. So we slid down the water slide. We were off the trail. So we're like in the middle really of nowhere. We're standing in the rain and we faced this fork really. Could go one of two different ways. We need to find our way back to our vehicle. And one way was an empty field. And the other way was like this old sawmill with one of those really cool like old water wheels on a river. And we got to make it back to our car. So like, which way do we go? So we sit there standing in the rain, got to figure this out, 50-50. We decided to go through the, the grass field. And we got soaking wet. We ended up, at the end of the field was this barbed wire fence. And so I started to hop it. And Nicole's like, I'm not going to hop that fence. You know, we'll be trespassing. It's like, okay, come on. Norwegians aren't going to shoot you. If anything, they're going to invite you in for some left sun in a warm fire. So let's just jump the fence, but she didn't want to do it. And so we headed back through the field and then through the sawmill and we made it back to our vehicle. But I was thinking, this is kind of like how life works sometimes, doesn't it? And maybe you're there right now. You're just like, you're going throughout life and then something happens. It starts to rain. Something kind of knocks you off the trail. Maybe it's a job loss or maybe it's like this unexpected job offer, or maybe it's an unexpected pregnancy, an unplanned pregnancy, or this itch to move. It's like you feel like you hit a wall in life, and now suddenly what you're standing at is you're standing at this fork in the road of life. Like, do we go through the field, or do we go through the mill? Do we stay, or do we go? Like, what's it going to be? And it throws you for this spin in life. Like, what do you choose? It's like this big decision. And if you're a Christian, what you start asking yourself at these moments is, well, what's God's will here? That's a great question to ask yourself. What's God's will? Do I move? Do I stay? Do I sell the business? Do I take this job? Do I marry this person? Do I choose this school? And we have the best of intentions. We think like, I don't want to pick the wrong school. I I want to take the job that God wants me to take. Like that's such a good heart. But often we put so much pressure on ourselves in those moments. Like how do I navigate this big decision? How do I know God's will? I pray this conversation that we're going to have brings you clarity. And we always go to Scripture for clarity. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We started in Luke chapter 1 last week, and we're just going to pick it up where we kind of left off. Verse 80 of Luke chapter 1. We've been, we've been tracing the footsteps of this man named John the Baptist. He was this crazy, wild man who Jesus said was the goat. We'll get that in a little bit but, or later on in the coming weeks. But Jesus said he's like the greatest of all time. So we've been, we've been tracking John the Baptist and what made, what made him great. And Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to pick up today. Let me pray and we'll just jump right in. God, I thank you for your word. And even in this moment, I pray that you remind us of the weight of this moment. 
most important time of the week. We gather together with brothers and sisters, shoulder to shoulder, lifting high your name and then hearing from dad. Hey, God, you always speak through your word. And I pray that we listen. We tune out all distractions. We really focus in on what you have. May we enter before you humbly, ready to receive your word. Whether it's something we agree with or, or disagree with, may we be submitted to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we enter into Luke chapter 1. We find ourselves in a, in a tiny stone home. The stone home bakes like an oven in the Middle Eastern sun, but the rough-hewn rocks, they trap some of the coolness from the night before. A little toddler runs through the main room and into the kitchen, and his, his thigh rolls just kind of bounce with him. His elderly mom scoops him and picks him up. For decades, this is everything she wanted, to be called Mama to blow a few raspberries on her child's neck and to hear them giggle. And her and her husband are up there in years. They know that at best they're not going to see him grow up much past his, his teens. And older parents, especially ones who struggle to conceive, they tend to be overly protective of their kids, but not these two. They've chosen the harshest place on earth to raise little Johnny. A little water, no greenery. The heat might feel good on their aging joints, but the heat is just relentless. Yet they do what they've always done as a couple. They adapt together. They make the best of what they have. They toil during the day, and then they thank God for their blessings at night. And Luke picks it up in verse 80. It says this. It says, and the child grew. Now, anytime we run into this in Scripture, it's really good to ask yourself, what did this look like? Because the Scripture does say this about a few different characters. And it's good to just ask yourself, what did this, this growing up? look like? Because if you really want to get to know someone, you find out how they grew up, right? Where they grew up, their influences, the child dynamics, what played a role in how they are today. This is why if you want to get close to somebody, maybe if you're dating somebody, you kind of take them back to your old hometown, to your old stomping grounds and show them around. Like if I wanted you to get to know me, I would take you back to the town in Wisconsin that I grew up in. I'd show you the house that my dad built. He'd work during the day and then in the evening he would go hammer away in this house and I would play. It's me out in the front yard just kind of playing in the mud as my dad hammered away. And then I'd take you to the tiny school about 30 minutes down, 30 minute commute through hilly farmland. And behind the tiny school was the soccer field. And we didn't have enough money for a scoreboard. So we took some plywood and we grabbed some corn cobs from the field next, uh, next to the school. And we would hang corn cobs on the plywood. And that's how we kept score at our soccer field. So that was 30 minutes one way from my house, but the other way, 20 minutes down the other road through some hilly farmland was the town where Nicole grew up. It was 75 people in two cheese factories, so the people were there really love, really love cheese. And her house is on the way to Devil's Head. This is where we had our first date, so I, we paid for our first meal together in that room. And just below Devil's Head was Devil's Lake. This is where my dad and I learned to scuba dive together. Or I'd take you to the bakery that my mom would take me to as a kid, and and we pick up donuts, and then behind the bakery was my grandpa's factory, and my mom would take us to the factory to give the donuts to, to my grandpa. Uh, and when we drive away from this whole area, you would probably understand me a little bit more, why I am the way that I am. And the same with you. I'd go you know, hang out where your hometown and meet your friends and, and walk the neighborhoods that you walked and go to the playgrounds that you went to, and I would know more about who you are. So when we look at John here, this child grew up, Let's get to know John a little bit. Where did he grow up? Well, John's upbringing is more obscure, but there are a few clues in Scripture that actually give us a peek into his childhood. So if you notice in verse 80, Luke tells us that John grew up in the wilderness. Now, many have read that, including some commentators have read that, and they go, okay, wilderness, 
Don't really know why that is. Could be anywhere. Well, sure, maybe. But in first century Israel, when you said wilderness, if you lived in first century Israel, there was one place that came to mind when you said the word wilderness. It was the same area where Jesus was tempted, the Judean wilderness, which was this triangular pocket between Jerusalem, the great city, Jericho, the oldest city, and then the Dead Sea. It's a completely desolate area. It almost looks like pictures from the Mars rover. No greenery, water scarce, harsh terrain. This is likely where John the Baptist grew up. And it makes you wonder how. Like you look at this, you're like, how do you, how do you grow up? How do you live there? Well, believe it or not, there's a couple small little settlements in this area. In fact, if you've gone to Israel with the bridge, we would have stopped in this area at a town called Qumran. You might have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, they're uh, scrolls that they found, crazy discovery that backs up the legitimacy of God's word. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran. And some believe, actually, that this is where John the Baptist did grow up, in Qumran. Qumran was a little community braving the harsh elements. And, and the reason that they lived away from everybody else was they wanted to have more religious freedom. So they figured nobody wants this land out here. So we're just going to live out here separate from, from the rest of society. People won't bother us. And so whether it was here or a community like this, this was John's daily scenery that he saw. Hot days, water was a commodity, food was scarce. Like this guy knew how to rough it. In this area, the main diet was dates. And the reason that dates were, were the main diet in this area was that dates are easier to grow in this area, but they're also, uh, they can be stored for a long time in this climate. And so they could, you know, they could keep it for a while. Uh, date honey is, uh, and was, but is today a major product here in this area. And scripture says that John ate honey. It could have been possibly date honey. It also says that John ate locusts, which might be gross to you. Actually, it is gross. But it was considered a clean animal according to the law. So maybe he did eat real locusts. But the other theory is, is that in this area, there's carob trees. And the carob trees drop these pods that are called locust pods. Uh, people don't really eat them. But maybe John the Baptist ate those. And people just, you know, it was locusts. Could have been those pods. Could have been real locusts. Not quite sure. But this is the stomping grounds of John. We continue on. It says, And the child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And we're about to see this really play out. The child grew up and became strong in spirit, meaning he had strong convictions. He had high emotional intelligence, which is very rare today to have high emotional intelligence, but John had this extremely high emotional intelligence, these strong convictions, and we're going to see this play out. So if you flip over to chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, we'll flip over two chapters because Luke chapter 2 is the Christmas story. Focuses on Jesus, but then it kind of bounces back to John in chapter 3. So Luke chapter 3, we're going to start in the end of verse 2. It says, The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So let's just pick this apart a little bit. End of verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, don't you wish it was that easy sometimes? The word of the Lord came to John. We're like, we look at that, we're like, how do I order that? I want that. I think sometimes we read texts like this and we forget the part of the story where he waited 30 years until he knew what to do. But we read verse 2 and we go, okay, why doesn't God do this with me? I wish it were that easy, wouldn't it be? Like, God, if you were to just tell me what to do and where to go, which school, which job, I'll do it. I don't want to pick the wrong option and screw everything up. And I think sometimes God often smiles and looks at us and lovingly says, oh, you're not big enough to screw everything up. So why don't you take a little pressure off yourself? It's just a job. It's just a school. 
See, so often what we do is we stare at this fork in the road. We're staring at two different paths, weighing two different options, jobs, places to live, whatever it is. And what we do when we hit this crossroad is we hyper-focus on the decision. And we don't mean to, but what we actually do is we over-dramatize the situation. We make the decision a way bigger deal than it is. It's all we think about. It's all our conversations tend toward. It keeps us up at night. It's like this hyper-focus that we have when in reality, and I'm not trying to downplay where you're at and the decisions that you're weighing, but the reality is the decisions that we freak out about typically aren't nearly as big of a deal as we make them out to be. Like if you look at verse two, if you look at verse two, this is the word of the Lord came to, the word of the Lord came to John because God was specifically directing John for a very specific purpose. And that's extremely rare. For the most part, the big decisions that you and I freak out about aren't nearly as big of a deal as that. Sometimes God just says, you can do either. Pick either. That doesn't matter to me. My will for your life is far bigger than that. See, I can tell you God's will for your life. I really can. And not because I'm something special. It's not because I'm like I'm a prophet or anything like that, but because I've read scripture and the word of the Lord has come to you. He's not concerned about which mascot you rep or who signs your paychecks. His will for your life is far bigger than what we hyper-focus on. God's plan for your life is for you to do what John did for the first 30 years, to live separate. No, not physically, but to live separate, to live holy, to look different than your neighbors. This is God's will for your life is to embrace holiness. To embrace holiness. First Thessalonians says, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, your holiness, That's God's will for your life. That's what he cares about the most and what you should care about the most. I had a friend one time. I know it's surprising, but it's true. I I really did. I had a friend one time. And he was was high school and he had been working a, a couple of jobs and was saving his money. He just wanted to buy a new car. And so he had enough money. He was going to buy this car. And he was telling me about this car, you know, the make and the model, all that. And I was like, sweet, a nice car. So I said to him, I was like, what, like, what call are you going to get in this car? He said, oh, well, Junior, I don't know. I'm still praying about it. I don't know God's will. I was like, oh, God cares about that? We think about it this way. God is up in his throne room right now in heaven. And scripture gives us details about what that throne room in heaven looks like. There's like beastly looking angels there, a diamond-like flooring, an emerald fog-like glow that hangs over the throne. There's flashes of lightning and, and peals of thunder. There's these intimidating angels that are encircling the throne, repeating, holy, 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 holy. And God stops the whole scene. He says, hold on, shh, stop, stop. Jerry down there is about to buy the wrong color car. I don't think God cares about the color of your car. The way I think about it is, once in a while, I love taking my girls um, to Five Below. You ever been to Five Below? It's like a place like everything's five bucks. It's a, it's a fantastic place. I always feel like a rich man walking in. Just be like, girls, pick whatever you want. All right, daddy's got you. I actually took them there the other um, two nights ago. And so we went in, and, and I have so much fun watching them pick what they're going to, you know, and it takes forever, but I love watching them decide based on their personality, you know, like Madison, um, she's going to be 10 this year. She picks a craft, you know, bracelet making and, and Nora, she's turning eight today. Uh, she picks up a, a book or, or a pillow. And then my youngest, she's five. She always picks like a weapon or, or something like that. And it's, 
it's fun to just kind of watch them decide based on their personality. And I love watching them kind of freak out because it's like all this pressure, like, oh, five bucks. Like, wow, what are we going to do? This is like this big decision. And every time I take them, this happened two nights ago. Every time I, I, I take them, they always ask me, Dad, what should I get? I don't, like, I don't mean this in a mean way at all, but it's like, I don't care. I really don't care. Not because I don't love them. I don't care because I love watching them decide. I love watching them take what they want. I don't care what they get, but I do greatly care about their relationship with each other. And I greatly care about how they interact with me, a relationship with them, how they interact with each other. I greatly care about if they use what they're going to get to bless others. But they can get what they want. That's not a big deal to me. So let's not forget that God asks him to call him dad. And sometimes, like a dad, God says, either school works. Either school works. Go be a fighting Illini. Go be a Wolverine. Both work. The school doesn't matter to me as much as you being able to find Christian community at that school. Now I care about that. That's my will, that you find like-minded believers and do school with them. Oh, I don't care about which job. Both those jobs work. The company doesn't matter to me as much as the impact that you make on that company, that you don't look like your desk mate, that you act different, that you represent Jesus, that you bring the kingdom of God into that workplace. I care about that. Either city is fine. doesn't matter to me. As long as you don't make a decision out of fear and you just run away from the mission field that I gave you, just run away from Chicago like everybody else. I think God says, why don't you just worry about being holy? Why don't you just worry about being a light? Yeah, but God, like, what if, what if you want me to go here? Should I go there? Like, what if you want something specific? And then God says, well, you know what? If I want something specific, if I want you to go to Egypt, I'll raise 11 brothers to sell you into slavery to take you to Egypt. And if I want you to leave Egypt, I'll send a burning bush. Like, I'll make it very clear. See, when we pray, and we should ask for wisdom. I ask for wisdom every single morning over, over the whole day and every meeting, all of that. We should pray for our decisions, of course, but at some point, it's okay to go, you know what, God, I don't see any signs here. I feel like you're giving me a green light on both decisions. And often God says, I am. One of my most prayed prayers is, God, if there's something specific that you want, if there's a specific place you want me to go, please make it obvious because you know me, I can be an idiot. So just hit me across the head. <laughs> but if you don't, I feel like I got a green light on both. Regardless of those decisions, God says more than anything, I just want you to focus on what I already told you to do. Pursue righteousness, love more, have more joy, bring peace to where you go, be patient, be kind. The fruits of the Spirit, that is God's will. And that's what John spent 30 years growing in. See, God's concern is more about who you should be instead of what you should do. What mascot of your school you should have or the color of your car. God cares more about you being different living radical, looking different than your neighbors, living this wild life like Jesus. Because the more we're like Jesus, and this is, this is why God's will is your sanctification, because the more you become more like Jesus Christ, every time we pray, we exchange our wishes with God and our desires align more with God as time goes on. And the easier and more clear de decisions become. So focus on who you are, not so much where, because when you are who you should be, you'll do what you should do. And we could probably just end there, couldn't we? But that's not God's will, so we're going to keep going. Verse 7. Verse 7. So he, meaning John, said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, 
you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, to raise up children of Abraham. So this is very gutsy preaching. Essentially what's going on here is that God's people during this time, had a lot of pride in their heritage. And to some extent, they should. Like, the Jewish people have a beautifully rich heritage. Problem was, is people were taking so much pride in their heritage, they just kind of felt like they were good enough. Like, hey, I'm Jewish. My dad was Jewish. My granddad was Jewish. We're God's people. I'm good. And John says, no, 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 no. God can make Jewish people from these stones. Plus, you're going to miss God in flesh in front of your face if you don't repent right now. So repent. Turn from your way. Turn from your goals, your selfishness, your ego, and turn toward God so that you can see what he's about to do. This was John's message. It's a very bold move. Essentially what God tells John is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go preach a very difficult message in an area that nobody wants to go to. That's what I want you to do. That's specific. And that's a really good theology to remember. When God is specific, it's usually something you don't want to do. My goodness, so often I hear people throw around that God is leading them. I hear it all the time. I've, heard, I've had people tell me, like, hey, Junior, God's leading, leading me to just stop serving. God's leading me to, you know, move toward warmer weather. Like, we want to do something, and we feel like we can't just do what we want, but I have to over-spiritualize it. Hey, God's leading me to just be more comfortable. That's taking God's name in vain. Anytime God leads someone specifically in Scripture, it's always somewhere they don't want to go. Moses to Egypt. Moses is a wanted man in Egypt. You know, that's the last place Moses wants to go. Jesus led to the desert. That's the last place anyone wants to go. That's what's happening here with John. This is not a fun message to preach. And so just kind of a little sidebar comment here to Christians. Let's be very careful. Let's just not, like, let's just not do stuff we want to do and then tack God's name on it. It's like, hey, God's leading me here. So nobody can say boo to me because I just said God, you know, that's taking God's name in vain. That's very dangerous. I went to Bible college and uh, Bible college kids can be super weird sometimes. I had a friend her boyfriend broke up with her by saying, I feel like God's leading me to break up with you. Are you serious? She, she came to me, she's like, I, I, it's like God breaking up with me too then? Like, how does this work? It's like, come on, dude, don't be a coward. Just say this ain't working. Don't, like, don't throw God's, like, God's name on that to protect yourself. It's so wrong. I told her, I was like, I think God's leading you to smack him. <laughs> like, if you want to do something that like, then just say you want to do it. You might have a green light for it, and that's great, then go do it. But be very careful with the whole, like, hey, God's leading me to, you know, go do what I want to do. Oh, my goodness, we're almost out of time. I'm only one point in. Um, all right, so John is in the wilderness. He's preaching a hard message. Verse 10, verse 10. So the crowds asked him, they said, okay, then what shall we do? And what shall we do? And if you have your Bibles in front of you, if you look at that, that next bunch of verses, John just gives a super practical behavior modification speech, like crazy practical. And I just want to point that out because sometimes Christians, the, the longer you're, we're Christians, and I'm guilty of this too, the longer we're Christians, the more easier it is to become a critic, just of just anything in general, a church critic, preaching critic, worship critic, whatever. And something very common that critics say today, especially if you went to like Bible college, is that you know if you hear a sermon, you become this like sermon critic, and you're like, well, this is like just so much, this is way too practical, this is like behavior modification, this is way too self-helpy. And whenever I hear that, I know there's a line, I get that. But whenever I hear that, I always think, you ever like read Jesus' sermons? You ever read John's sermons? Because they're very practical. Look at John's sermon here. Clothe the poor, feed the hungry, stop exploiting, stop cheating, stop being selfish. And it all goes back to verse 8. He's saying bear fruit. 
It gives us our second point. You want to navigate God's will for your life? This is God's will for your life. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. That's God's will for you. And this is massive. I have a sticker on my iPad. This is bear fruit. It's my favorite sticker. They have my t-shirts too. I don't know. It's a dad joke. Sorry. I just, I thought it was funny. This seems, listen, I know this seems so simple. It's like, okay, this is like bridge kids, right? Okay, bear fruit. Like, come on, like we can go a little bit deeper, can't we? No, hold on for a second. This is, this is massive. So let me just explain this. You will struggle less with God's will for your life if you have a lot of fruit in your life. And maybe that sounds very offensive because you're like, I'm struggling right now with God's will for my life. So let me just explain what I mean by that. Not always, but often. Here's what happens. As we go throughout life, and we're waiting on God for something, waiting on God for a relationship, waiting on God for the right job, waiting on God for a baby, waiting on God for a house. You're like praying and waiting, praying and waiting, praying and waiting, waiting for God's will when God like brings everything together for us. Meanwhile, as we're praying and waiting for something, we're living unsatisfied. We're always dreaming of that greener pasture that we want God to bring us to when God reveals his will for us and everything just like comes together. And I'm living in this like this full life of a garden. I know this might hurt to hear, but it needs to be said. What if this pasture you're in right now is God's will for your life? What if you're in the pasture God has for you, you're just the one to make it green? You're the one that needs to bear the fruit and own this pasture and make it beautiful. Like the guy sitting in his gray cubicle at his desk, dreaming of the corner office. You're praying for that office. Would you like that office, your office that you're in, a little bit better if you embrace this pasture and you bore more fruit? Like, what if you decided, no, for these next three years, I'm just going to bust it here. I'm going to serve my coworkers. I'm going to turn this, this drab, gray cubicle job into a, a, a fun, loving office. Well, man, three years from now, you might not be praying for that corner office. You might be thinking, no, God has me here. I'm bearing fruit. This is awesome. Just got to bear fruit in the pasture that you're currently in. It is a very dangerous thing for a fruit, and it happens all the time. It is a very dangerous thing for a fruitless life to run into a fork in the road. Very dangerous thing. Because a fruitless life will then just grasp at anything different than what they're currently doing. It's like, oh, my life is so boring. I'm so lonely. Life is so gray. It's so dusty. It's so dry. Oh, they're terrible decision makers at life's crossroads. Because they'll just take whatever. Because whatever is better than what they're doing right now. It's the person who bears fruit on their current path that makes the best decision. This is the fruit that I've been bearing. You know what? I'm not done here. I'm going to stay on this path. Or, now, you know, I think I can bear more fruit on this path over in this direction. This, that's the mindset that we need for decisions. So, yes, pray. Pray, absolutely. But ask yourself, am I bearing a lot of fruit on my current road? And if the answer is no, I would say, hold off on the decision then. Make your current pasture worth something before you leave it. Such good stuff here, isn't it? Well, uh, John's story gets even better when he takes off the wrong person. So if you look at verse 19, look at verse 19. Um, if you have the Bibles in the chairs, it's the ESV translation, which is uh, my favorite translation. But I'm going to show you in the New Living Translation up here because it just has a smoother smoother read to it. This is Luke 3.19 in the NLT. It says, John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife. So this is like, okay, now we're getting juicy stuff. It's like Jerry Springer type stuff. What is going on right here? Uh, let me just give a little bit of background to what's going on here. Uh, Herod Antipas, other than having great curls, was the, was the son of Herod the Great. And you might know Herod the Great. Herod the Great 
you can try to kill baby Jesus, kill a bunch of babies, that Herod the Great. So when Herod the Great died, he had three sons that he split his kingdom between. And so a third of Herod's territory went to Herod Antipas. And he had two areas that he ruled over. So around the Jordan River areas where John is, is preaching, he's going up and down preaching in this area. And then west of the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum is. In fact, many people believe this is why Jesus chose Capernaum, because it was in Herod Antipas's district, and it was just kind of a, a political thing that was going on at the time. Uh, Herod, Herod Antipas's pa uh, palace was in the south. This is where John the Baptist, in the coming weeks, we'll see he'll be arrested and he'll be beheaded. Sorry to spoiler alert there, but um, that, that's in the south, and so his palace is, is down there. So some messed up family dynamics going on with, with these brothers. Herod had a brother named Philip. They would have grown up together. They'd been running around the palace together. Philip gets married to a woman named Herodias. But Herod, Herod Antipas thinks, you know what, Herod and Herodias, they just kind of go together better than Herodias and Philip. And so through divorce, Herod takes Herodias, his brother's wife. It's the talk of the town. It's scandalous, especially for his Jewish subjects. And so John publicly calls him out in his own territory. And that actually gives us point number three. See, John is still trying to navigate what God is wanting from him, where to go, what this ministry is going to look like, where God is taking him. All that is still really up in the air. But in the meantime, John held on to his convictions. And that's point number three. God's will for your life is for you to strengthen your convictions. Strengthen your convictions. You go back to verse 80 of Luke chapter 1. Luke says the child grew strong in spirit, meaning strong in convictions. John held on to his convictions regardless of how unpopular they may be and what it brought him. And this is God's will for your life. I feel like this is what I preach to my girls all the time now. To do what God has called you to do, you will need convictions, especially if you're going to follow Jesus in this culture and do what he has called you to do, you are going to need strong convictions. Weak convictions will sideline you. I think what happens, not even I think, I've seen it happen so often. God desires more for us, but how often does he look at us and say, I can't lead you to that yet. You don't have the conviction for it. You will quit. You will compromise. You will walk away from my community. You will fold like a cheap suit. I can't bring you to that yet. You don't have the convictions for it. Maybe we should spend less time trying to decipher the specifics of our next move and start asking ourselves, do I have the conviction needed to go into the next season of my life? Do I have enough conviction to make this change? Do I have enough conviction to lead a family well? To bring in a wife and make babies and lead well? Not just put food on the table and a roof over heads, but actually lead my family to holiness? Do I have that conviction? Because many guys, most guys just don't have strong enough conviction for that. They just bend and they sway. Do I have enough convictions to lead a team at work well? Oh, I love the idea of being the leader and having a bigger paycheck, but do I have strong enough convictions to do what's right every single time, even if I'm going to take a hit for it? Do I have strong enough conviction to enter retirement and not waste my life? Do I have strong enough conviction to be more of an influencer without bending and swaying based on whatever culture is doing? Do I have strong enough conviction to make more money and not squander it? Do I have strong enough conviction to date without compromising my values? See, many people don't. And God in his grace will then sideline you. You say, hey, I know you want that. In fact, I want that for you too, but you can't handle it. And so what's loving for you is for me to hold you there because your convictions aren't there yet. You will fall if I bring you to that. You will fold if I bring you to that. You will run away if I bring you to that. And sometimes we ask the wrong questions. 
Like, does, does God want this from me? That's a great question, sure. But often we must ask ourselves, do I have the conviction to handle what God is bringing me to, what God wants for me? The crossroads you're at, that big decision on your plate, do you have strong enough convictions to handle the options? That's worth a lot of thought. Yes, pray over your decisions. But more than that, before making a decision, ask yourself, am I living holy? Am I living holy? Don't make a decision if you're not. Jesus said himself that clarity comes from holiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Clarity comes from purity. If you're not living in purity, if you're not trying to live holy, you'll make terrible decisions. Are you bearing fruit? Is this current pasture you're in better because you were there? And do you have strong enough convictions to handle the change that you're weighing? God's will for your life isn't a code to crack. It's a person to be. A lot of times we view God's will like an escape room. You ever been to an escape room? My wife and I did one one time and we never got out. It was, it's like escape room is like you're locked in a room and then you got to like solve all these puzzles. And then if you solve it in time, then, you know, you escape the room and um, it's a lot of fun. But a lot of times we view God's will like that. I just got to figure out, I got to decipher all of these things and I can make it out alive and God will be happy with me. No, it's a lot easier than that. It's not, God's will is not a code to crack. It's a person to be. So let me put it this way. So often we view God's will like we have to hit all of these different targets in life. So I got to hit the right targets so that God is happy with me. I got to marry the right person, soulmate. Right? That's why we have that word soulmate, all this pressure. I find my soulmate. By the way, I don't believe in soulmates uh, at all. Um, I was telling somebody this a couple weeks ago. Uh, they had, we were talking, they said something about like she was single and uh, with my wife. And so the three of us were talking and and this girl said, you know, I think maybe my soulmate died because I've not found them. And I was like, oh, I don't believe in soulmates. She's like, really? I was like, yeah. And I know this is like so unromantic, but it's just, and you can disagree with me. It's really okay. But the truth is my wife could have married many other Christian guys and had a great marriage and had a great life. Like it didn't need to be me. Now I'm glad it was me because my options were way less than hers. But Nicole, as much as I love her, she could have married someone else and done well. I could have married someone else and I still could have been in God's will. Like for me, God's will for me when it came to a wife, it wasn't necessarily Nicole only. It was like, I got to find a girl who loves Jesus, who wants to do what's right, who's not easily offended, and who likes to have fun. Probably would have worked out fine then. And once the ring is on, now it's God's will for that ring to stay on. Now it's a soulmate once the ring is on. But many people, they put all this pressure on themselves. Ah, I got to find the right one. I got to find my soulmate. Got to find the right school to go to. I got to buy the right house that God wants me to buy. And I got to drive the right car that God wants me to drive. And I hope it's the right color. And I got to find, find the right career track, God's will for my life. Got to hit all of these specific targets. And if I miss one, oh my goodness, it's like stress city. Then what do I do? Because the reality is, is and for real, this is why people feel a lot of pressure when it comes to God's will. Because like if I get one thing wrong, well, then everything else is just messed up. Everything else is messed up. God's will for your life is far less specific than we often make it. It's far less, it's far less specific. It's far more free. It's boundaries. God says, I want you to stay in these boundaries. If you're single, there's a few people in my will that marriage would work well with. The way to tell is, do they love Jesus? Are they committed to Jesus' community? Do they care about following Scripture and submitting to Scripture? If not, it doesn't matter if they call themselves a Christian or not. They're outside my will. But there's a few that would work great. 
There's a few different places that you could work, but there's some places to stay away from. They're doing some shady things. But there's several places that work really well for you. There's many houses and cars that you could buy. Now, there's some to stay away from. They would put you into debt, and my will for you isn't to live with this big debt. But there's many that would work out. Just stay within these boundaries. Other than that, as a dad, I just enjoy watching you decide. And on the rare occasion I have something specific for you, I'll make it obvious. You don't have to stress about it. I'll send a burning bush. I'll raise 11 brothers and send you into slavery. We'll figure that out when it comes, but I'll make it obvious. Like, listen, I'm not saying that God doesn't specifically direct us. I'm not saying that at all. I, I believe that God has specifically directed me a few times in my life, and it's been like awesome and, and amazing and incredible. Like, uh, for example, the house that I'm living in right now, I really do believe that God specifically had that for me. Now, I could have picked another house and been just fine, but this story of my house is kind of cool. Like, uh, I was helping Jordan move one day, and it was during a time, it was actually during COVID, when we were between houses, and the market just kind of like, we were waiting to find a house, and the market just, you know, COVID, and and we couldn't find a house. We were living in my parents' basement. And I was helping Jordan move one day with my brother-in-law. We're driving in the truck, and I pointed at a road, at a street. And I said to my brother-in-law, man, I wish something would go for sale down that street because I just, I love that street. But nothing ever goes for sale. That night, I got an email from somebody in our church saying, hey, uh, we need to move. We're on this street. We heard you're looking for a house. Do you at least want to come look at our house? It's like, well, that night, like, come on. That's like crazy specific. So I, I believe that God had that for me. But if I would have bought a house in another neighborhood, I don't think God would have, like, punished me for it. I do believe that God specifically direct, directs and, and answers prayer like that. But focus on being in these boundaries is what God is telling you. Focus on who you are. If you are who you should be, you'll choose within these boundaries. If you are who you should be, you're bearing fruit, you're embracing holiness, you have these strong convictions, you're going to want to stay within these boundaries. God's will is not some code you need to crack like an escape room. It's far more simple than we like to make it. Our focus should be daily living different than the rest. If you look a lot like your neighbors, you just go to church, you're not different. You're not different. God's will for your life is far bigger than that. To live holy, to bear fruit, to make your current pasture green, to live with some conviction. And when we focus on that, life becomes more simple. And that is a green pasture to enjoy. So the question becomes, so what? We always ask ourselves this. We come out of God's words. Like, all right, God speaks through his word. So what? How does this change us? We don't want to just be hearers of God's word. We want to be doers. So how does this change you? The question I want to toss your way is a little bit different than we usually go, but just kind of roll with me for a second. It's a yes or no question. Is do you really want God's will? Do you really want it? Now that you know God's will, embrace holiness, bear fruit, Strengthen your conviction. Do you really want it? Because a lot of people call themselves Christians and really don't want God's will. Oh, we say we want God's will. But in the end, we really don't. We just want God's direction, not really his will. One of the most popular counseling sessions among churches, and it's not just at the bridge, though this happens a lot at the bridge, but just in churches in general. Somebody will come in to meet with the pastor, maybe Jordan, me, whoever. Sit down and meet, and they'll want to talk about, okay, i, I got to figure out God's will for my life. You know, I'm, I'm in this relationship, and I don't know if we should, like, take the next step and get married. I don't know what God's will is. Is God's will this person as a spouse? And one of, the, like, the questions that we'll ask is, like, well, are you sleeping together? Yeah. So, okay, well, God's will is for you to not sleep together, so let's work on that first. Because you're not going to make a good decision if you're not in purity. You're asking for God's direction. You don't really want God's will. Let's not separate that. Do you want God's will for your life? Do you want 
to be holy? Do you want to bear fruit? Are you bearing fruit? And do you have a desire for each day to grow in God, to strengthen your convictions for what God has for you? Because if you're not doing any of that, you can't really say you want God's will. Do you want God's will? Because once you're doing those three things, those decisions, they become a lot easier. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.